Last week, we kicked off our new series, Come Together, by talking about the unity that Jesus prayed for and desires for his followers to pursue with one another. Jesus desires you and me, his church, to avoid division at all costs and put in the hard work of living in unity so that the world will believe in him and know his love for them. There's absolutely nothing more important than showing people Jesus. He tells us that the outside world can see him because of unity in our church or lose him amid our division. And today I want to talk about the unity a little bit more, but more specifically about how unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Living in unity with other Christians doesn't mean that you have to be exactly like all other Christians. Unity doesn't mean that we have to entirely forfeit forfeit our differences, our experiences, our perspectives, abilities, or likings. And I cannot stress this enough. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. You don't have to be just like everyone else to get along with everyone else. You'd be against God's design for your life if you bought into the lie that you had to forfeit all of your individuality for the sake of unity with other believers. Now, speaking of uniformity, there's been a popular and uncalled for nickname that I've heard thrown around over the past six months. And it's meant to be a a jab at anyone who seems to be acting the same, acting uniform and, and following the crowd. And here it is. Sheep. Sheep. Now, here's a funny story I read this week about actual sheep. One farmer said that if you have a bunch of sheep in a barn, stretch a rope across the door before you let them out. When the sheep come out of the barn, the first few will jump over the rope. But if you cut the rope, the remaining sheep will still jump over the invisible rope because it's what the rest of the flock did. And this is the heart of that that jab people have been throwing around the past couple months. Sheep are pretty much all the same and simply follow the crowd. Now, here's the ironic thing. In the Bible, sheep are also used symbolically to represent God's people. The Bible literally refers to you and me as sheep. In John chapter 10, Jesus himself talks extensively about the good shepherd and and his sheep, which is a reference, obviously, to Jesus himself and people like you and me, his followers. In one section, Jesus plainly states, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. No jab there. Jesus is merely shedding light on the fact that you can tell who his real followers are based on those who listen to what he says and apply those words to their lives. They don't just agree with what he says, but actually act upon it. So although the term sheep can be used as a modern day jab, I guess, the Bible, even Jesus, uses it to frequently describe our relationship with him. But here's what we have to understand. Being described as a sheep doesn't mean we are mindless. It doesn't mean that we have to be similar and uniform. Being described as a sheep simply means that we are all under the same shepherd, Jesus Christ. And under Christ's guidance, we have immense freedom to be who God created us to be. I don't know if you've had time to look around at our world's beauty lately, but God's creation is incredibly diverse. You can travel worldwide and see beauty through so many distinct and unique ways through so many different and unique people. We don't serve a cookie cutter God. And that applies to us as well. God didn't create us to be the same. He didn't create us to pursue uniformity, but he did create us unique individuals to pursue unity. Let's think about the disciples that Jesus asked to follow him. 
the group that Jesus handpicked to get this whole movement of Christianity going, the group that was the pioneering leaders of the church that we see reflected in our Bible. They were not a similar bunch. You had lowly fishermen all the way to wealthy government workers. Even a lot of their personalities varied immensely. I don't know how you would pick a team to change the world. Maybe you would prefer people you knew had similar experiences to yours or one another, uh, comparable worldviews and, and personalities. Perhaps you would pick a team that you knew with great confidence would always get along and think the same. But we have to understand that isn't how Jesus picked his team. Jesus wanted unity, but certainly, and we can see he intentionally avoided uniformity. He searched out and championed the uniqueness of his disciples. For example, Peter has garnered the nickname, the duh disciple. And honestly, he's the one I identify with the most. One minute he is walking on water by faith and the next he is literally sinking in doubt. He was always a little too quick to speak and slow to listen, oftentimes putting his foot in his mouth. Then you have Andrew, a deeply religious man that seemingly remained in the shadow of his brother Peter. We know that even these brothers were incredibly different and came from two varying faith backgrounds. Or take John, for example. John was a fiery disciple who, get this, he actually described himself to others as the disciple that Jesus loved. John didn't say, I'm one of the disciples that Jesus loved. No, he said, I'm the one that Jesus loved. John thought of himself much different than the rest of the disciples. Look at Matthew. Matthew would have been known as a modern-day customs official who taxed imports and exports based on his own judgment. And the Jews, which the other disciples were, would have had a bad taste in their mouth uh, about this tax collector. Uh, they didn't like tax collectors such as Matthew because of their involvement supporting the oppressive Roman government at the expense of their own people, at the expense of the Jews. When Jesus brought Matthew into the fold with the other disciples, he was, for all intents and purposes, bringing in a lifelong adversary, an enemy, a bully, someone who had nothing in common with the others. You also had Thomas, who was prone to extremes. On the one hand, he was willing to risk his life as he followed Jesus into a dangerous city, but then he was the one who wouldn't believe Jesus conquered death until he could see Jesus with his own eyes and touch him with his own hands. Nicknamed Doubting Thomas because when others believed by faith, Thomas was grasping to accept by proof. And I could go on and take another five minutes or so to talk about the rest of the disciples, but I think we get the point. When it came to Jesus picking his team, Jesus didn't choose uniformity. And I believe there is an excellent reason for this. In one of Jesus' last few moments in this world, he gave his disciples this charge, and we call it the Great Commission. Matthew tells us in chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus had the wisdom to know that if this hand-picked team of his, the disciples are going to take his message to the entire world, a world that is full of unique opinions, perspectives, personalities, and worldviews, then he is going to need a team that also reflects that contrast, a team that has differences, but knows those differences can be celebrated as strengths or set aside in conflict because of the unity they have in Christ. 
And those disciples would go on and reach an incredible amount of people because of their unity in Christ being of most importance, a top priority. And they would eventually start what we know as the church. A few years later, a key spoke in the team's wheel, which helped the church thrive, would be a man known as the Apostle Paul. I often remind everyone when I'm teaching, uh, because it's so easy to forget, that before giving his life to Christ, the Apostle Paul was literally hunting Christians and the church, authorizing their persecution. But then upon following Jesus, he turned from his ways and became one of the most outstanding leaders the church has ever known. I don't know how you would feel if someone who was literally hunting you and your family because of your faith had a, a change of heart despite their crimes and now wants to be on your team. Even the most Christ-like of us would be a little unsettled, I imagine. Now, I'm sure that even some of the Christians alive during Paul's conversion may have been hesitant as well. But through Paul's life, we even see the extremes of how differently we may have messed up in the past. A pretty significant difference we see it set aside because of pursuing unity in Christ. So who better to understand that unity doesn't mean uniformity than the Apostle Paul? He actually takes some time in a letter he wrote to a church to champion this idea. This letter is in our Bibles and it's titled 1 Corinthians because it's Paul's first letter we have to the church that met in a city called Corinth. Now frequently I hear people say, I want my church to be like the churches were in the Bible. I want it to be like that. And it's always kind of funny and even a little ironic because those biblical churches were just as wildly imperfect as any church you'll find in this lovely country of ours today. A bunch of imperfect people getting together in community will never, I promise you, will never lead to perfection. It's just not going to happen. So we should probably lower our expectations a little bit. But for the church in Corinth, their shared struggle was, believe it or not, their differences. They were created differently and God had given them unique strengths, abilities, and weaknesses, just like he does for all of us. But for that church in Corinth, their differences became a dividing point. So at some point in time, the church either reached out to the apostle Paul to settle their disagreement, or Paul caught wind of it through the grapevine and wanted to address their dispute before it led to further division. And so in chapter 12 of his letter to the church, Paul writes these words. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. You see, Paul is trying to get the church to see that it is God who is behind their uniqueness and differences. Paul is trying to get them to see that God has created a unique place in the church for all the individual types of people. The believers in, in, in Corinth, they, they may look at the members of their church and think, well, I'm not like this person, that person isn't like me, and they felt that that was a problem. But Paul is trying to get the church to see that we are each uniquely designed, sometimes different as can be, sometimes significantly different, to truly show the world who God is. Variety in our personalities, gifts, abilities, strengths, and even weaknesses is a beautiful thing when we focus on the God behind those differences, because those differences are by design, not by error. I'm a little embarrassed to say that sometimes I can easily forget that. Maybe you're like me in the sense that sometimes you realize that you're nothing like someone else in your church family, have nothing in common with another believer, whether that is by, by strengths, gifts, age, uh, political opinion, uh, uh, past uh, life, spiritual knowledge, whatever it is. 
And you can maybe keep your distance or focus so much on what you don't have in common as opposed to what you do have in common. I think that is where things start to change. When we stop focusing so much on what we don't have in common with people and pursue unity through what we do have in common, which is a love for Christ and Christ's great love for us. In his book, The Pursuit of God, author A.W. Tozer wrote the following. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they two to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. And I love that quote because it shows that real unity doesn't come through being just like one another or always agreeing, but by always focusing on Christ. I know we'd all like to live in a world where we never have to work at understanding anyone else, accepting anyone else, or, or thinking like anyone else. It may be more comfortable if everything was just the way you want it and believe it should be all the time. That's far less than what God wants for us or created us to be. Now, in a moment, we'll listen to some more of of Paul's words that he writes regarding the differences that we all as the church share, but how those differences can lead to a beautiful strength when we pursue unity in Christ. It's a brilliant, timeless metaphor about the human body possessing many parts Still, it takes all of those parts to make up the entire body, and thus it'll be the same with the church. We need these varying uh, differences, but these valuable parts to to be useful in our community, to be as useful to the world as we possibly can. And Paul tells that church in Corinth, I think even still us today, he says, yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. Now, Paul is stating the obvious that we aren't all going to be the same. And then a little humorously, I think he continues. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? Now, Paul will go on, but let's stop right there. Uh, To be honest, every time I read this section of Paul's words, I get a little irritated. It's like he's making things so simple, so elementary for me to understand. I can feel belittled a little bit. But honestly, church, that is what we need sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we need to be talked to like children because it is so spiritually immature to allow our differences to lead to division. Sometimes we, we need just a simple reminder that we can find such power and purpose in our differences if our focus is solely on Jesus Christ. And Paul continues in a larger chunk of scripture and says, but our bodies have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some of the parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. 
Verse 25, this makes for harmony among the members so that all members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. I appreciate Paul's words because they lean me away from my own preferences and remind me how a healthy church should function. All of us are different for a purpose, and in our differences, we are tasked with working together to show the world the love of Christ. There's no need to compare ourselves to one another with such a great goal as that. Whether it was a church in Corinth about 1,900 years ago or any church today, it's easy for our differences to lead to division. But still, despite the differences, we all have one thing in common, our faith in Jesus Christ. On this essential truth and on this truth alone, we'll be able to find unity. In Christ, we don't lose our individual identities, but have overriding oneness. By putting our faith in Christ Jesus, we become a member of God's family, one of his children created to be different. But like pieces of a puzzle, God will create something beautiful when we place our differences in his hands. To do anything else would once again to reject God's design for his church. So here's what I want to challenge you with. First and foremost, Pursue who God created you to be. You may not have the same gifts or abilities as someone else. You may not share a similar past or present or possess unique strengths and weaknesses. You may not be just like everyone else, and that's okay. At times, you may feel as if you struggle to fit in with the rest of the world. But here in in, in church, in God's family, you fit in. You have a home and a seat at the table to be who God uniquely created you to be. And secondly, I want to challenge you to look for ways to appreciate people's differences. As you encounter those who may not act like you, think like you, or have a lot in common with you, come to understand that they serve a valuable role in God's kingdom. As you come across or spend time with those you don't have a lot in common with, take some time to thank God for how they are, how he made them to be, and thank him for bringing them into this family. Make it a habit of yours to look for how God can use all of us, people who simply agree on Jesus, for the great purpose of loving the world around us and showing them how to live in unity.